0: Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. And good afternoon. Excuse me. Good afternoon. Welcome to this, the... Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. If the first casualty of war is the truth, then what is there to be said about the ways in which the mainstream media system, the dominant news corporations, cover U.S. foreign policy concerns, especially in times of open military conflict involving allies, client states, and imperial interests? What influences the dominant line? What might we draw from recent mainstream coverage of the wars in Palestine, Israel, and Ukraine? Joining us today to give his take on these and a host of related questions is longtime media critic, author, activist, professor of mass communications, now retired, and friend of WRT, Bob McChesney. Bob, it's good to see you there on the screen. We're all doing this remote today, but uh, welcome to Virtual WORT.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here, Alan. And welcome back to the airwaves, too, brother. Uh, You were off for a while. I'm glad to see you again. Yeah, I took a
0: a little break, and uh, it it is good good being back. It feels good prepping for the program now. Excuse me again. Bob, you've been a decades-long observer and critic of the ways in which the dominant media system covers domestic issues and foreign policy. So let's start, <clears throat> excuse me, folks, at the broad level. Drawing from what you've witnessed over, over that longer period, what might one expect from the mainstream coverage of open conflict and war, especially when it involves so-called national interest or as it is articulated by the powers that be?
1: Um, um, I, I think the way to start to understand the sort of media coverage you're going to see of U.S. foreign policy, uh, particularly when there's possibility of war uh, or violence, but in general, is that it's the coverage tends to be heavily dependent on uh, what are called official sources. The information that news media get to report to the public uh, as journalism oftentimes is handed to them by representatives of the government of the state department maybe even the cia of of congress people Uh, and that's presented more or less as the basis of whatever the story is so if you understand that you understand why suddenly the news will be covering a certain country giving a lot of attention like a lot is happening there uh, good or bad usually bad and then not cover other places in the world where probably similar stuff's going on that affect the people in a similar way, or maybe even worse, but get no coverage here. And usually it's because people in power are talking about the former, not the latter. So people in power are concerned about a particular country in the United, that the United States has an adversarial relationship with. So you're gonna get a lot of news coverage suddenly about all the problems in that country. And there might be other countries that actually have far worse things going on, but the United States doesn't seem to have an issue with that. So we don't hear about it. It's not considered news. And so in fact, what develops because of that, is that our, what we think is coverage of foreign affairs is oftentimes just more or less what the government wants us to think about foreign affairs, not with any sort of level survey of the the world's politics and sort of presenting the most important thing at the time uh, to the the people who are getting the news in the country. I'll give you a couple of quick examples of that. We have uh, lots of coverage for the last 20 years now of Venezuela, and what a hellhole that is! And what a horrible place it is, and how undemocratic it is, and it probably would shock a lot of Americans to realize that people come and go from Venezuela all the time. It's it's not Pol Pot's Cambodia, uh, but if we get a ton of news news about what a horrible place uh, Venezuela is, and how we have to do something drastic to deal with what is sometimes called a terrorist state now, uh, and. You know, it's basically because the United States government has decided Venezuela is a country they don't want to uh, succeed in its current system and they want to sort of replace it with a government friendlier to U.S. interests. And that explains why we get this press coverage. If U.S. officials weren't talking about it, it wouldn't get much coverage. On the other hand, a country like Saudi Arabia, which has, by most accounts, one of the most reprehensible human rights records in the world, and has no claim to being democratic whatsoever, far less than Venezuela, gets almost no coverage. Because it has a very warm relationship to the US and, and a, a collegial one. And so there's no interest in the part of the State Department, CIA or major politicians to raise this with journalists as an issue that should be covered extensively. Uh, so the reliance on official sources explains what you see and how it's framed very much. Now the other side of the coin here is that if official sources and politicians were debating issues aggressively, that wouldn't be as big of a problem. Because let's say in the case of Venezuela or Saudi Arabia that I just gave, that Republicans and Democrats had lots of people debating that, taking different sides, providing different takes of it to the public. Uh, then journalists would be working both sides of the street. They might be uh, compelled to actually go out and investigate the claims of both sides to see what the veracity of them. And that might produce some pretty good journalism. But the other side of the coin with the way that news media in the United States covers foreign policy, foreign affairs, and issues of war and peace <clears throat> is that there tends not to be a lot of debate about these issues among our major political parties, the Republicans and Democrats, certainly not among the leading lights of them. And so journalists are getting the same message from both sides of the aisle. They're getting it regarded as this is actually the truth of the matter. And they cover it accordingly. They cover it as this is not really a debatable issue. This is how it is there are weapons of mass destruction in 2003 which we were told and which wasn't really debated uh, until after the fact (laughs) but at the time it was being presented it was accepted by the news media as the gospel truth so these are the sort of context you should uh, parameters always keep in mind when you hear about another war when you hear about another enemy we're supposed to hate when you hear about another crisis we have to solve you have to ask why is this suddenly a news story what is the basis of this information Am I getting any contradictory information? How clearly are these claims being investigated and established? And I think the historical record is that usually we find over time that the great claims we have, be it for weapons of mass destruction, be it for some sort of genocidal developments that are taking place, oftentimes don't hold up later on when we go back and study them, but they were being pushed aggressively to accomplish a policy end that was desired and that they knew they had to whip public uh, support for the policy end by exaggerating or fabricating uh, the claims against the enemy.
0: So how do we apply what you've just just discussed, and there's much more to it, of course, to the current coverage? What are some of the varied influences on what could be viewed as the line, the current line, the enforced consensus in regard to the escalation uh, of the Palestine-Israel conflict?
1: Here, I, I have to preface what I'm about to say is that I'm anything but an expert on Palestine, Israel, even the current conflict. And Alan, you know 10 times more than I'll ever know, uh, currently and on the past. So I, I'm not coming here to sort of give the expert take on Palestine, Israel right now. But I can say, based on what I just said, um, what we would look for is um, the way the news media has covered this where has, what's been the basis of most of the information the news media? Uh, U.S. news media has, has provided us, not all of it by any means, and I know there are brilliant exceptions, but for the most part it's coming directly from White House sources, State Department sources, intelligence sources, more or less the establishment is presenting a particular view. <clears throat> Accordingly, since October 7th, like it had been for the decades before that, it tends to be highly sympathetic to Israel, uh, highly likely to take Israel's word on what's happening um, and especially critical of uh, enemies of Israel, forces Israel deems as enemy, enemies, specifically Palestinians, and uh, are uh, not regarded as favorably. Uh, and they're not taken as seriously uh, by our government, by our official sources. And therefore, our journalism tends to be considerably more sympathetic to Israel than to Israel's adversaries. Um, so, that, that would be the first thing you'd say. And this is a consensus position for the most part. Uh, Israel has is very much has uh, strong supportive relations with both Republicans and Democrats, both sides of the aisle. Uh, they they, uh, they have, both parties are sworn uh, to work closely with Israel and defer to Israel on these matters for the most part. The fact that the United States provides so much economic support to the U.S. to the Israeli military. It's not taken to mean that therefore the US has a right and an obligation to sort of inspect what Israel's doing with the money. Uh, To the contrary, it means Israel should just go ahead and do what it wants and the US should stand in the background and defer to Israel as having the best understanding of of its interests. Uh, So this is more or less the situation uh, that we're in today. Uh, And you see it the way the issue, the, the pertinent issue right now before the world that we're facing is the question of whether there should be an immediate ceasefire uh, and a prevention of an invasion of Gaza by the the Israeli military uh, in in the immediate future. And what's striking, I think, if you look at the coverage of this in the way it's in the United States, is that virtually the entire world is in favor of a ceasefire. Uh, It is not really a debated issue, uh, or if it is debated, the debate has been won by the idea that Stopping uh, the potential genocide against Palestinian people in Gaza is the highest immediate priority. Uh, it should just be ended right away, uh, and that just—that's where you start. And in, indeed, recent polling I've seen suggests that 66% of American people want an immediate ceasefire uh, in Gaza uh, to stop the uh, potential genocide and the current ongoing. Uh, Destruction of Gaza that's taking place as we speak, as I speak today. Uh, and but in the U.S. Congress, it theoretically represents the American people. Only three percent of members of Congress favor an immediate ceasefire. Three percent versus sixty-six percent. Well, that tells you <laughs> Israel's really got a pretty uh, solid hold on the U.S. Congress, uh, because Israel and the United States are the only two countries in the world really that oppose an immediate ceasefire. Uh, they're the the two that are lined up there, uh, and so that that's a good way to start. That doesn't explain at all the nuance. I and mean, I've seen some outstanding reporting just in the last 48 hours on uh, U.S. news stations like MSNBC that you know it was surprising, unusual, because usually they just basically present uh, the U.S. government position at the time uncritically. So there's good stuff that goes on. And there's some excellent journalism if you hunt and uh, look around the world uh, for coverage, Uh, but that doesn't, so that it's not a black, white picture, but at the same time, when you look at the U S government's position, it pretty much is a black, white picture. You're listening
0: to Bob McChesney, a mass media critic writer, author, activist, uh, We'll be opening up the phone lines at six, oh, excuse me, again, 608-256-2001 at, oh, at <laughs> half past the hour. If you want to join us today uh, with questions, comments, observations, again, that number is 608-256-2001. Bob, while we're on the topic, let's talk... ...about what is commonly referred to as the special relationship between Israel and the US. There are numerous variables that come into play. I'd like to broach the topic that is often more or less taboo in the mainstream, and and that is the significance of the Israel lobby. Some go so far as to deny its existence.
1: Is that a? Do you want me to? Yeah, sure. False. I think think just the statistic I gave that only three percent of members of Congress support a ceasefire, while sixty-six percent of the American people, even with the news media coverage they're getting, such as it is, uh, support a ceasefire by recent polling, um, suggests that there's something askew there that that the Israeli position is hardly is rejected or accepted by. 97% of Congress, or the the ceasefire is only accepted by 3%. And um, I think the Israeli lobby is, I'm surprised to hear, I guess it's it's poo-pooed because it's sort of a a sensitive issue because it does suggest then that a lobby can actually influence Congress so carefully. I don't know why we're, if if the Israeli lobby, the pro-Israel lobby doesn't exist, then does the a gun lobby not exist? Does the bank lobby not exist? Does the health insurance lobby not exist? Um, Of course, lobbies have all sorts of influence over all sorts of policies. Why wouldn't the Israeli lobby? A very good friend of mine, uh, when he got out of college 27 years ago, uh, a progressive Jew, I should add, went to work for AIPAC, which is the um, main uh, American pro-Israel lobby uh, in the United States, based in Washington, and he worked there for a year, and he was pro-Israel, but not um, anti-Palestinian. I would say he was, he was. He was, but he worked there, and he was astonished at what an extraordinarily successful lobby it was, the, the scope of it. I mean, basically, they had it down so every member of Congress was. They were. De- they had plans for everyone. They know how to deal with everyone. They were cultivating everyone. They were. It was. He said it was just. It was really as a lesson in how to do political. Political work in the United States Congress, APAC had the had the system down cold. They were really writing the book, and um, I think the research that's been done on it, all the controversial, only because it, the conclusions it reached were uncomfortable, it makes it clear there is a very powerful lobby. It is very effective, and um, you know we see examples of that time and time again. Just recently. Alan, you're probably familiar with this, and again, I don't have to top of my head at the exact details, but within the last few years, um, one of the things that APAC and related uh, pro-Israel lobbies has done is they've decided to start primarying Democratic candidates who are not sufficiently pro-Israel uh, and who are suspected of being possibly t- too pro-Palestinian uh, for their taste. And they've gone into, especially the black dist- uh, districts that are predominantly African-American, And they've gone after uh, either sitting members of Congress or if there's an open primary, the favorites in these races and come after them hard and fast uh, to to get candidates elected or get nominated by the Democrats who are strongly pro-Israel. The most infamous case was last year when Nina Turner, uh, who was running for Congress in Cleveland an African-American district, she had been co-chair of Bernie Sanders' national campaign. Uh, looked like she was going to win an easy victory after she, uh, uh, in her primary, after uh, for an open seat, and then uh, an APAC-related group came in and funded uh, her opponent, who was just run up at the last second, poured a lot of money into it to buy TV ads, and she was defeated. Uh, and you know, to the extent we can find out where this money is coming from, it doesn't look like it was coming from her district didn't look like it was coming from uh it was unclear who it was coming from but a lot of it looked to be coming from pro-israel groups uh, or that were funding this so um, they they're going to both parties and they're basically saying if you're anti-israel you're going to face a primary threat with a lot of money against you if you're pro-israel your life will be very sweet uh, you will have a you will not have to worry about a primary threat uh, in fact we'll go to bat for you if you face one uh, from someone who says you're too pro-israel
0: Now, of course, there's numerous other influences. Uh, It's often said that war is good for business. Talk about the ways in which the military-industrial complex functions, the role of the war interests in shaping that arena of discussion, uh, and the free flow of ideas leading back to what amounts to a free flow Mm -hmm. of cash, a blank check for, that siphons back to uh, these major military corporations.
1: Well, I mean, this is one of the central questions of American politics for the last 50 years, and it's also one of the ones that's virtually not debated or discussed at all. It's it's absolutely striking. Um, You know, the United States, uh, it's going to shock people that before the Second World War, um, it was considered a crisis and a scandal if anyone made money during wartime. Uh, I, this, this is going to absolutely blow people's minds that for the first 150 years of our country's history, 170 years, until the Second World War, until after it, uh, that someone would become rich during a war, get make profit off of killing, was considered obscene. We didn't really have a full-time militaristic armaments industry prior to the Second World War. Uh, and so um, the, the famous example of this, well, during the Civil War. This was a huge scandal Lincoln had to deal with. The, the, the people were getting rich off uh, the Northern effort. And then in World War One, it was an issue again, and especially clear in World War II that this was gonna be a problem. And FDR, as we entered the war, said, I don't wanna see a single millionaire created by this war. And Harry Truman, who had become the Vice President in 1944, made his name by leading a Senate uh, investigation of war profiteering in 1941 and 1942 to prevent it because it was considered so obscene that someone would get rich while other people were dying for the country. So this was the American tradition. It's a tradition Americans should be proud of. I mean, it's, it was understood that you can't have war profiteering uh, in a country and have any credible sense of fighting the war on the behalf of the people. Uh, well, this has all changed since then. Uh, we went into basically permanent war economy since the 1940s, starting with the Cold War And uh, when the Cold War semi-formally ended in 1990, uh, the military industrial complex stayed right in place with really no change whatsoever, uh, and still exists to this day. What that means is a significant percentage of uh, the US GDP is accounted for by military spending. Uh, And it's it's decidedly off limits as a political issue. When um, Dwight Eisenhower, who had been the Supreme Commander of Allied Forces in World War II, he served as president from 1953 till 1961. And in one of his last addresses to the nation, uh, he basically warned against the military-industrial complex. He said, this is an unaccountable group that will never go away because no one even talks about it. It's very dangerous. It threatens the heart of every American institution. This is once again Dwight Eisenhower said this. A very famous speech. It's oftentimes quoted, but it's never been taken very seriously. And This is one example of exactly the influence of official sources on journalism, because you would think that just a journalist looking at the US federal budget would see, you know, the, what, $900 billion annually that's spent on uh, military spending. And that's the conservative figure, uh, more systematic figures that look at all the stuff that's buried in other departments, that look at the interest payments on the debt i put the figure well above a trillion dollars, more like a trillion and a half dollars annually. You would think a journalist would look at that and say, wow, let's study that, particularly because it's the one branch of the federal government that's never had an audit done of its books. We don't really know how much, where that money's gone. Uh, every sign is that it reeks of corruption, that entire budget, uh, that there's money going, that's being misspent, misallocated, uh, and doing no good whatsoever for what it's intended to do. So you would think journalists would be rushing to do this. You would think politicians can make a name doing to the military budget what Harry Truman did in the 1940s to military profiteering during time of war. You would think that, but it doesn't exist at all. When Pentagon budgets come up to be voted on, they're basically waved through, a voice vote almost. They don't even need to have a, no one opposes them. It's sort of an off limits issue. It's barely covered in our news media. And it sort of sets the tone here that it's not a debatable issue. Uh, and it's one of the striking problems of our, our society to be considered self-governing or democratic. If The military industrial complex is off limits. No politician can change it. No party can raise it as an issue or debate it, which is effectively the case. Then you've taken one of the central features of our government and removed it from public review or consideration. And journalists are active participants And not only encouraging, but guaranteeing that outcome And the way they fail to cover that issue.
0: I want to bring this back to the the, the current conflict or conflicts. That is, that issue that we've touched on, of the ways in which the conflict is reported, who gets covered, who doesn't, uh, who matters and who doesn't. Uh, One of the things that I'm, you know, constantly aware of is the erasure of history the the absence of context as if hamas, uh, as if the hamas offensive came out of nowhere uh, for for all that matters as if the occupation doesn't exist uh, and 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 they have this you know you mentioned this this impending threat of an uh, invasion of gaza the, the first comes the erasure of history and context and then the erasure of people so uh, you know, I want to bring it for our listeners to back to this discussion, if we can.
1: Well, I would say you're the person who's more equipped to have this discussion with our listeners than I am, because uh, I you're the person Alan I turn to on exactly looking for the context for Israel Palestine, understanding it. Because I think it's fair to say, and here I speak more as uh, an informed person who tries to consume the news as much as possible, uh, and I have been that for a long time that uh, to me, it's understandable. A lot of people don't really know what the heck's going on in the Middle East. I think if I, I talk to my students uh, uh, and I'd say, "Well, what's the story in Israel? How's that working?" I would say the knowledge level didn't impress me, and it's understandable why. If you're just consuming our news media and looking for that, it's really hard to get a sense of what the issues are, uh, what the background is, what the history is of, of the situation. That, and so. Yeah, it's it's a good point that this is, I think, largely lost uh, on on most Americans and m- many people in the world, for that matter, but certainly in the United States. Bob, you've talked about the
0: um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, sorry, you've talked about the uh, you've observed but <laughs> sorry, I lost myself here. <laughs> That's all right. Talk about what you've observed as a change in the pro-Israel stance? How it has changed? How the discourse has become increasingly racialized or what you've been picking up on in the news?
1: Uh, well, I, I mean, I am, uh, yeah, I, I think that racial, you know, I think one of the things that makes this by Americans and people are understandably sympathetic to any time there's a terrorist attack on Israel is that the the history of um, violence and terrorist attacks yeah. and the Holocaust on Jews is is in all our minds or should be and therefore you know it's not something you just sort of forget about. Um, but at the same time, you know that also applies to everyone else too. And we've got we're looking at people living in Gaza, living uh, in the West Bank, uh, Palestinians who've lived in this country for centuries and centuries. And has seen it whittled down to there in a very small portions of this country. And the impending violence, or the existing violence that is impending to grow much larger um, is, a, is appalling, I think, to anyone for the same reasons that racialized violence, anti-Semitism is, should be appalling to anyone. Uh, and no different, no less. And those lives are no less worthy all lives are worthy of the
0: same respect. 608-256-2001. If you want to join in this discussion with uh, mass communications critic Bob McChesney, give us a call again, 608-256-2001. Now, Bob, there's an ongoing propaganda war. Uh, There's been the stories of atrocities unverified but nevertheless given wide birth as fact uh, most notably uh, recently uh, the immediate stories of the uh, murder and decapitation of Israeli babies that was never verified uh, but became uh, became fact out in, in the in the blogosphere and so on um, or <clears throat> the Ongoing has the, been the reshaping and dissemination of counter-narratives. Uh, you know, most recently, again, more currently, the example of the recent hospital bombing in Gaza, which quick, quickly became an explosion. When I heard that, I thought to myself, what, this place just kind of spontaneously combusted? What was an explosion? Mm-hmm. Um, that it allegedly, that it, that it was allegedly caused by an er, errant Islamic jihad missile. Talk about that. The the you know well again the mainstream as we've touched on gets gets goes into high gear in repeat repeating the oftentimes unverifiable or you know the truth the fact now of course fact uh, truth becomes uh, interpretive. Both sides put out stories. Both sides put out narratives. Talk about that a little bit.
1: Sure. I mean, in times of war, uh, as you said, I think at the beginning of the program, truth is the first casualty, Uh, and uh, journalism is one of the main battlefields. Whipping up public support uh, or minimizing public opposition uh, to what one of the sides, either side, wants to do is absolutely critical. And uh, so putting the correct spin or on something that happens or making something up altogether, if it helps you, uh, is, is par for the course. So, this is a time that calls for journalists to be at their highest level of BS detecting going on, except nothing uh, uh, and and do everything to get to the bottom of something. And it's not easy to do in times of war. It's not easy to do when they're lining up to, to invade a country or to be invaded uh, to say, hey, give us a 60 day timeout so we can check out the veracity of the various claims here. You don't get that that option. You've got to act immediately. But I think, Skepticism is the first order of the day, and you because know, the entire history of wars, and not just the US wars, but those are the ones we know best, is filled with uh, claims that are made in the spur of the moment, in the heat of the moment, to generate public support for whatever policy, war policy there is, they're almost invariably proven to be bogus. Uh, going back to the battleship uh, Maine or whatever it was in the Spanish, in the Cuba, in 1898, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution in uh, the 1960s that formally authorized us to uh, invade Vietnam uh, and, and have the Vietnamese, the Vietnam War, uh, to the weapons of mass destruction. All of these things got pushed out and they looked smelly at the, at the time. Some people would say, this doesn't seem right. But nonetheless, uh, they were pushed hard and dissent was squashed and they were accepted. And so all sorts of stuff like this happens. And, and, and skepticism is the order of the day, especially the harder it's pushed. But it's hard to do. And, and again, the battle's about to take place, so you're sort of left in a difficult position when you're being surrounded by stuff that just doesn't seem right. And I think one of the problems we face is because journalism fails at moments like this, and it doesn't even try very hard, but because it doesn't really can't really help us at this exact moment we need it. Uh, It tends to just go with the flow and say, well, we don't really know the answer, but it seems this way. Uh, It tends to end up just parroting whatever official sources it's most comfortable with. And and in in effect what this does, uh, it promotes all sorts of conspiracy mongering. Uh, It really inhibits the ability to have much of a coherent analysis uh, of the claims that are being made at the time, and therefore of the war that's impending.
0: Jade, our producers, telling me that we have our first caller. It's been a long time since I've taken a caller on the air. Hi, Steve, you're on the air.
2: Yeah, it's been a while, Alan, and uh, good afternoon, Mr. McChesney. Uh, I speak in praise of or at least in defense of mainstream news media, such as the New York Times, as opposed to what I call fake news, uh, perhaps more precisely alternative online news working for old-school capitalist news providers fellows like Tom Friedman at The Times and John Anderson at CNN working in the field in Beirut and Baghdad respectively rose to prominence due to their competitive excellence in reporting working outside the framework of institutional corporate media but nevertheless within the spirit of entrepreneurial capitalism online independent news providers Are primarily motivated by competitive egotism. My opinion is based on personal observation and an adult sense of what is going on with no professional expertise on the subject of contemporary media. I welcome a rebuttal, and by the way, I am a socialist and an anti Zionist. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Steve. Well, I think Steve's right about uh, Tom Friedman, ironically. I mean, he's been criticized a lot in the last 20 years, but uh, his work on uh, in the 1980s that sort of made his name, I think, was, is held in fairly high regard in his, in his writings on the Middle East. Uh, and I think S- Steve's also right about the fact that to the extent there is uh, credible coverage, uh, a lot of the best of it will come from the handful of remaining uh, corporate news media source uh, reporters, there's only a few of them left that cover uh, politics, who actually are on a beat and get to know people. But I don't think we should exaggerate it because that's a very small amount of uh, reporting at this stage of the game. One of the changes from the era Steve is referring to uh, of, of press coverage has been the decline in the number of uh, international correspondents by US news media that are covering regions of the world and therefore ideally at their best be exposed to a whole range of material, not just the official US sources. So they can examine the claims by uh, various sites and have a ways of getting uh, some approximation of the accuracy of the various claims, and also can provide different perspectives uh, on issues that emerge in the Middle East or anywhere else for that matter. We have very few of those reporters left, so that it is down to basically uh, people, you know, interpreting other people's work, uh, usually with their own agenda or approach, or fact-checking it. And sometimes that can be very good, uh, and that's useful. But having people on the ground covering it is extremely uh, helpful. But I, would, I don't think we should dismiss, even for the reporters he mentioned, that Steve mentioned, I don't think we should dismiss the um, reliance on a, a US official sources uh, for influencing US news media, even among our best reporters, I think they have a strong alliance and sort of making sh- sure that it, their are writing comports with sort of what the uh, president or the State Department is saying and doing with their reporting. And here, I, I, there's a story, a famous story by uh, the great uh, English reporter on the Middle East, Robert Fisk. And I remember he was one ward after ward for covering the Middle East uh, uh, so thoroughly and breaking story after story. And he was critical of Israel, but he's also quite critical of uh, all the countries in the Middle East. He carried water for no one in that area. And it was a country where it's an area where there's not a lot of water to be carried for a lot of the governments there. And uh, Fisk won award after award for best foreign correspondent in Britain. And uh, I heard an interview with him, and he said, you know, and they asked him about American reporters. Uh, the best ones even, the ones who worked out in the Middle East, and he'd say, you go into a hotel bar with journalists, and you talk politics about what's happening in the region at night, and all the American reporters have these great stories, and they talk about what's actually happening, and then he said, he'd say to them, well, why are not you putting these your stories? I don't see that in the New York Times. I don't see that in the Washington Post or Wall Street Journal. They laugh, they oh, I can't do that. Uh, I, I tried to get that stuff in, but there are limits to what I can do. And, you know, that's really, you know, and Fisk was unimpressed. He said, you know, that your job is sort of exactly what you're saying is happening, is what you should be reporting. And they admitted they can't get a lot of what they see happening into the news. We have
0: an- another caller, and then we're already growing short on time. I wanted to get to talk about Ukraine a little bit anyway. But um, Sarah, hi, you're on the air. Hi, Ellen. Oh,
3: thanks for the program, because not all of us have what are called smartphones. Not all of us citizens have a, a television a coverage from CNN. Um, I depend, I'm in New York State, I depend on the New York City uh, radio station. Well, uh, what I got from them at the beginning of the war, um, the war, um, was um, all about Israel and all about the hostages and all about we're going to really kill these people because they're so angry. And then uh, the only coverage I could get on the radio was war. So, of course, I tuned into war. And so thank you for letting me express this.
0: Thank you, Sarah. Bob McChesney?
1: Well, I think certainly on October 7th, and immediately thereafter, the immediate coverage uh, of the Hamas uh, attack on Israel was exceptionally sympathetic to Israel and and condemning of Hamas, uh, which is to be expected. Uh, And, and, you know, I think the comparison to 9-11 for the United States was made then and often I think that um, since that's happened, uh, the cover, you know, the US government position has had to like, step back just a little bit. Now the Biden administration is formally and publicly completely uh, supportive of the Israeli government and what it wants to do and plans to do. Uh, And Biden has made it clear uh, that at least formally, they've made no demands upon Israel whatsoever. They'll support Israel. Uh, when it does eventually invade Gaza. But I think what has happened is that aside from that uh, globally, um, the demonstrations that have emerged around the world, which are little short of extraordinary, and the amount of solidarity shown around the world for the the people in Gaza facing uh, what's going on right now and what looks to be infinitely worse uh, in the near future, uh has jarred everyone uh if it hasn't they're not they they don't know what they're something's wrong and uh, said this is something's very wrong here that has to be done and i do think that has had some influence on the on the news uh media in the united states i've seen coverage that has been sympathetic to what the people are going through in in gaza that in the last couple days i have not seen a couple weeks ago or in the last in a long time.
0: So uh, up until October seventh, in the beginning of the Hamas uh, offensive in in Israel, the mainstream international news was largely dominated by the war in Ukraine and the new that new special relationship with the government in Kiev. Uh, and then the Ukraine story seemed to evaporate. How do you explain? That with something more than the push of the so-called news cycle.
1: Is there well, an explanation in the case of Ukraine? It disappeared because you you, all the official sources are talking about the Middle East now, for obvious reasons, uh, the, with the threat of a hot war there, the hot war now existing there, and its possibility of growing into a regional war, which is very much alive, uh, and the possibility of gener- developing into full throttle genocide. Uh, very much alive, so that's clearly going to take the attention of the world um, away from other wars that are being fought at the time, uh, and uh, and for you, you know, if U.S. reporters were still, if, if something was going on in Ukraine, they'd find a way to make that into the news. But it's fallen off, as is usually the pattern. Although it is striking that in the emergency aid package that President Biden uh, wants to rush through to support Israel since October 7th that will be voted on, I think, now that they have a uh, uh, Speaker of the House, that will be voted on in the very near future. Uh, that I think, and Alan, correct me if I've got the number wrong, it's $15 billion for Israel, uh, military aid for Israel immediately. Is that correct?
0: Um, I'm not sure the exact number... Uh... So I, I, can't yeah, be, I can't be in a 30 on that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I'm sure someone listening knows, it's a big number and I think it goes into like nine digits. And um, But it also includes, um, if I'm not mistaken, much more than that, as much as 50 or 60 billion to pay for all Ukraine war support for the next year or two. This being tagged down to this uh, bill, there's a rushing it through uh, and that will get no debate. That's just a given that apparently that Ukraine uh, we'll get this money, which is, you know, an interesting development because that's a war that, you know, is ought to get a little more attention since we're putting, we're putting this sort of resources in that war that are, you know, that's real money, $60 billion or whatever it is, $50 billion. And
2: really-
1: like... You sound like Everett Dirksen many, yeah, many like years like ago. Said it, said it, said it, raised exponentially by you know, a factor of a thousand.
0: Yeah. For those listeners not familiar, in, in the debate on military spending, the uh, uh, Republican Everett Dirksen, uh, an old hand, uh, got up and said something to the effect that uh, a billion here and a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking serious money. <laughs>
1: exactly. Uh, so at any rate, um, this is a uh, the Ukraine war is very much alive. It's very much a concern. It, like the Middle East war, holds the possibility of spreading to a much larger war. There are a lot of issues there, um, and it's a very complex situation, not unlike the Middle East too. It's not a simplistic situation because Russia's a, a interesting country, to put it mildly, uh, which has nuclear weapons, which is worth noting. Um, so it, it's the sort of issue that deserves a lot of attention and a lot of debate. And we haven't had much debate at all. And it, it, it's sort of attention we've gotten has been largely channeling U.S. government and State Department and White House positions on it, um, mostly uncritically.
0: You know, uh, continue. We have a few minutes left. But in the, continuing with the case of Ukraine, um, there's a, a maintenance of a media-induced collective amnesia. Of everything, I, I mentioned the erasure of history before the collective amnesia of everything prior to the Russian invasion in February twenty-two. Um, talk on, talk about the importance of that. There's there that yeah you know that is with the exception of some uh, principled conservatives, uh, you know, on, on the right talking about uh, well, Ru- <clears throat> Russia might have some legitimate claims or concerns
1: yeah Uh, it
0: gets dropped out
1: i think you know the problem we have alan was that we've only got a few minutes left and this is this is opening up a can of worms that probably is only get all the way open even the uh yeah i think the most important issue is that because we didn't it's presented with the u.s government position uh in our news media or the nato position in western european news media coverage for the most part there isn't much history and recognition of, of sort of what's happened in the region historically, uh, and the the whole issue of NATO's relationship to Russia, which has been probably, in Russian minds at least, the most important issue since the collapse of communism since nineteen ninety, um, and sort of the change there and the growth of NATO, and Russia's desire to have NATO's growth stop, uh, so it does not come right up to Russian borders, and this is. A part of the uh, history, the background of the Russian-Ukraine war, is absolutely central to understanding both sides, really. But it's been poo-pooed by U.S. sources, as saying that's really not that big of a deal. Countries have a right to join NATO if they want to, but by doing that, we make the so the Russian position. I almost said Soviet. The Russian position uh, incoherent to a certain extent, and we have to reduce it to. Putin's a crazy man and the Russians wanna conquer Europe and this is Czechoslovakia in 1938 all over again. And I think that's does an injustice to really what the, the issues are there without trying to claim that Russia is not uh, is a good guy or that Putin isn't someone we should be concerned about, but just to make clear a sense of what's actually going on and understanding that Russia is a country like the United States, which has its ambitions and goals um, and that it enters politics wanting to advance those much like the united states
0: you know um jay tells me she wrote me a note here saying that uh, a, a, <clears throat> a listener, <clears throat> excuse me once more that a listener was hoping uh we could talk about the sunni shiite division and how it relates to the geographic to the broader geographic area um, it's kind of far afield from, from our discussion today, uh, so I guess this actually allows me an opportunity to mention that next on uh, next week's program, program, we'll be having Muin Rabani, uh, who's a Middle East analyst specializing in the Arab-Israeli conflict and Palestinian affairs. Uh, he's um, one of the uh, people doing the wonderful online magazine Jadalia. And uh, he's we'll be talking to him next week. we could take that uh, that question up next week. so so we'll continue this this discussion uh, certainly of uh, Palestine Israel conflict as uh, well as it continues to uh, develop or disvelop as what we might say. Bob we have a couple couple minutes left uh,
1: where,
0: where can we go with this at this point uh, Do we lose your, do we lose Bob? You're muted, Bob. Hmm. Un- no, <laughs> what did you touch? <laughs> Sorry folks, we we have some dead air from uh, uh, the communication. Okay, uh, there gonna, you go, no. you're back, you're back. I was just I gonna say it. we have I don't dead know air. How that
1: happened. Uh... Uh,
0: I was just going to say we have a to take not I heard this
1: question, Alan, so let me answer it. I think the Please. logical thing people want to know when they hear a show like this is, well, where can I get uh, some new information, some better information, some lo- a different approach so I can come up with an independent position on what's going on there or, or understand the various positions better. And a, a close friend of mine who uh, is a political scientist who is – said basically he's been fed up with all the press coverage in the U.S. So he's been going to Al Jazeera uh, and, and watching that extensively for coverage because it does much better coverage of getting the the, the air position presented uh, and getting that. Uh, I think that I find that there's a lot of really good stuff online. I'm, I'm not here to name names uh, offhand. Uh, so I'd recommend people look around and there's you know there's junk there's really good stuff but uh, Al Jazeera might be a place to start. Um, Democracy Now, which I think is carried on WART, uh, has had some very good coverage too. Independent again, people who aren't just parroting what the U.S. government position is in the United States, uh, or or the Israeli position, which oftentimes is close to the U.S. government position. Uh, and I think ironically, uh, some of the best coverages in Israel, uh, Haaretz. Uh, Times of Israel, they really, if you read that, you'll get much stronger coverage. And the, the credit of those papers are, is that I think that does influence U.S. journalists and how they covered this. I think the smart ones say, gosh, Israel's questioning Netanyahu and his motives. Maybe we should too.
0: Yeah, no. It's for a long time, those of us who've, uh, for many years, have followed uh, the ins and outs of, of this, you know, ongoing conflict have said that there's a wider debate and discussion within Israeli society uh, on all the questions involved far far broader and uh, far more detailed than anything that's uh, covered in the mainstream here so yeah I, I concur with Bob that uh which is you know it's not a left-wing paper really periodical uh, it's it's moderate uh, but it has some great columnists, uh, uh, Gideon Levy and Amira Haas and others who really um, uh, connect the dots. So thanks, Bob, for that. As we as we draw to a close, Bob McChesney, some final comments about the media system, about what, what you're observing in the world at
1: this point? Well, I think the world is in uh, bad shape right now, I think. You know, it is a moment of uh, where I think paying attention and trying to understand what's going on is very important. There's a, But I think it also points ultimately that uh, in the United States, we have a special obligation to really examine the, the role of the military. Uh, it, ha- it needs to be subjected to the same review any government uh, function is subjected to and debated. And we've got to get politicians asking questions about this military budget, all these wars we're in uh sort of networks we're creating and supporting uh because if we don't uh you know there's not a very happy ending on the horizon for us so we got a couple minutes
0: left Uh, actually we're down to the wire again i want to repeat uh what i mentioned before that uh, the um, dutch palestinian Muin rabani Middle East analyst specializing in the Arab-Israeli conflict and Palestinian affairs uh, will be our guest next week. So I hope you uh, listen next week that we continue our our collective learning process. Uh, and it's good to be back on the air. Thanks for our callers today, Sarah. I uh, shout out to you, Sarah, up there in upstate New York. Uh, I want to thank Jade, our producer. Jack, our engineer, and I especially want to thank my good friend and friend of WORT's Bob McChesney. I've been your host for the hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. (laughs) Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime, treason, we broadcast in submission.